even if Joe was in Ukraine or wherever else, right, or China, it is even if Joe was in Ukraine or wherever else, right, or China, it is infinitesimal that no Trump is involved in. It's like it's like it's like a firefly to the sun, right? I mean, like there's just it doesn't even it doesn't even stack up against Trump University. It's like it's like a firefly to the sun, right? I mean, like okay. I don't know what's going on with that clip. Oh, okay. The clip glitched out for some reason. And um, I wanted to show that clip because this was the first of several meltdowns that Sam Harris had engaged in that um, I, I thought were outrageous. But I wanted to show Constantine's face in the context of that meltdown where I'm certain Constantine was saying to himself, as he's looking at Sam Harris, holy cows, I can't believe he's saying this. And this is going to go viral. Not that that's not that that is the goal of everyone during a podcast, but at some point things happen where you say, "I can't believe I'm hearing this." Uh, this is going to attract the attention of the world. Uh, so yeah, I don't know why I can't uh, play that clip without it glitching out, but it's on Twitter. That interview is is out there, and I want to thank uh, whoever it was in the Viva Barnes Law, uh, Viva Barnes Law community that reminded me of that Isaac David Waxman. Thank you for reminding me of that. Okay, today. Sorry, I don't mean to scream. Uh, Constantine Kissin, host of Trigonometry with Francis. Uh, I actually forgot Francis's last name, but I know it's, it's an F. Um, we're going to talk for a bit. Uh, I was on Trigonometry a while back, back during the uh, convoy, the Canadian convoy, the Ottawa trucker convoy, after Justin Trudeau had invoked the Emergencies Act. Um, and then Constantine and I got into uh, what was a misunderstanding on Twitter. And I'm glad we now get to talk again in person because Twitter is not a place for nuanced discourse. It's not a place for mutual understanding. It's a place actually that I believe exists to create misunderstanding, conflict, and that's what drives the wheels of the Twitterverse. Um, I'm going to bring Constantine in right now. Constantine coming in in three, two, one. Sir, hey, dude, how are you? Good in yourself. Yeah, very good. Thank you. Now I'm going to see if the chat says the audio is level. I think it's good. Um, Constantine, I have very what? shiny lips today. I don't know why. It looks incredibly weird. You have shiny lips. I got a shiny forehead. I got, but it's it's nighttime <laughs> where you are, and I'm I'm dealing with my floodlights. That floodlights yeah. and a greasy forehead. Uh, Constantine, it's good to see you again, and I'm glad we can fight. <sighs> I feel guilty. I have uh, you know I tend to obsess over misunderstandings, and I've been a mis I've been obsessing over our Twitter misunderstanding from a while back. But I'm glad we can now talk in person. And I've been listening to about 20 hours of you in the last week. On... I feel so sorry for you, my friend. Well, it's actually, <laughs> I, I listened to the... the my commiserations. Well, it, it, it's phenomenal. I listened to like seven hours of you and Francis on Joe Rogan, the two episodes. Uh, the psychopathy episode, I forget the name of the doctor. Uh, mm. Okay, people say the, the audio is good, good. Constantine, for those of us who may not know you, for those out there who may not know you, the few, 30,000 foot overview, and then we're going to begin this discussion. Well, very short version of the story is I was born in the Soviet Union uh, in the early 80s, and I grew up in that society. I then saw that society collapse around me as I was a young kid and my family involved in various aspects of that. My father was uh, he was kind of like a mini oligarch turned government minister under Boris Yeltsin turned uh, it, it, what would be the right way. He had to flee the country under a false identity because he was falsely accused of a bunch of things since vindicated. Uh, and my parents, when that brief period in their time, when they had a bit of money, they sent me to England to boarding school, which is how I ended up here in the UK. 
Um, I ran my own small translation business. I got bored of that. And I was like, you know what, let's do stand-up comedy. So I, did, I started doing that, and I did that for many years. And then, uh, as you mentioned, Francis Foster, him and I decided to start uh, my YouTube show, our YouTube show, Trigonometry, in 2018 to basically understand what the hell was going on around us because we were just two idiot comedians, didn't care about the culture, the culture wars, the any wars, the anything, didn't care about politics particularly, uh, probably were quite sort of normal, left-leaning, uh, you know, com you know, comedy people, which is my, what you're surrounded by. But what we started to see was particularly around 2016, suddenly like, uh, you know, suddenly everyone was racist all of a sudden, just like out of the blue, like everything was fine. And then everyone became racist overnight. And I found that very weird because I'm obviously first generation, quite dark skinned immigrant in the UK. I'm not saying, you know, there aren't any racist people here, but it wasn't my experience that I was constantly surrounded by bigots, quite the opposite. Actually, when people find out you're from a different country, they're welcoming and curious and interested. And, uh, it's a, it's a spark for a conversation rather than for some kind of um, antagonism. And particularly, by the way, if you contrast it with my experience of living in Russia, uh, actually, I found British people are far more tolerant, which won't surprise many people. So, um, you, you know, that that was part of it. And then in comedy, it was so you sort of be standing, you know, as a comedian, you spend most of your time standing backstage listening to other comedians. And it was just, it just became normal for like, you just see these guys going and say, oh, I'm a straight white man, so I'm this and I'm that. And I was I couldn't understand what was going on. Suddenly, like, race became a thing and men were toxic and all this, just like out of nowhere. Um, and it was a very strange thing and we couldn't understand it. And so we wanted to start a show and basically ask people who knew more about it than us what the hell was going on. Uh, and over that time, we've interviewed, other than you, you know, the Jordan Petersons, the Douglas Murrays, the Andrew Dawes, who's a good friend of ours, and lots of other people, left and right, uh, to basically understand what was going on in the culture, what was going on in comedy, what was going on in politics, um, and start to, to kind of educate ourselves, really. Trigonometry has always been primarily a self-education project, and everyone else is just along for the ride. All right, now that's that's a lot there, and we're gonna we're gonna break it out or parse it out. But just actually go back to your childhood because you're mm -hmm. 40 years old, born in Russia. Russia fell, or the Soviet Union collapsed in '91. So you're nine years old when that happens, give or take. Am I wrong? Right? Yeah. Okay. Yep. Uh, how, you say you're dark skin, and this is why I always thought you were Greek and not Russian mm -hmm. until I started learning. Um, Jewish, but obviously Sephardic like, and, and Greek background. No, no, uh, Ashkenazi plus Greek. My dad is uh, so there were a lot of Greeks uh, in the Soviet Union who lived on the Black Sea coast, uh, and so my dad's family are from from that that background. And my mum is uh, probably probably Ukrainian, uh, so uh, it's hard to hard to know because uh, okay. it's also intermixed. So basically, quarter Jewish, quarter Russian, Greek, quarter uh, and a half Ukrainian. Is my background okay very interesting and now born and raised under the soviet union mm -hmm. you have conscious memories of this it's not like you left when you were four and you don't remember a thing you you were raised as a child under that regime saw it collapse how long after school the under it as well this is the one of the things i talk about in my book sorry to interrupt like first of all i experienced it myself you know my family you know going like what we talk around the dinner table you mustn't say this at school so i i still remember that and of course then you know, you, you talk to, particularly, as you know, in, in Eastern Europe, you have big families. The grandma is always around the table. 
telling stories. So I'd hear all about the gulags and the, the Stalin purges and all of that when I was growing up as well. So that was also a big part of, of kind of my connection to the history of, of the Soviet Union as well. How many kids in the family? Are you an only child? No, I have three younger sisters. I have a bunch of aunts who all have a bunch of kids. So like a big family. Yeah. So big family. You're as a child, literally brought up to say, these are the things you can't talk about publicly. Mm. Uh, because if you do, we might, we might get in trouble. Right. Oh. That's exactly how it was. It's exactly how it was. And actually, that is in a way how I ended up in the UK, because my grandfather... Uh, after the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in 79, in the early 80s, he said he criticized in a private conversation what the government was doing. And one of the people there reported him to the KGB and they came to his flat, to his apartment. They searched it. They found a radio receiver uh, that he used to listen to uh, Voice of America and BBC World Service, uh, all these banned Western evil capitalist propaganda. Uh, and uh, they uh, forced him out of his job. Uh, his wife was forced out of her job and my, his children, that's my dad and my aunt, um, they were both at university and they were both kicked out of university. So there, all four of them, the entire family's lives were ruined uh, by this process to a large extent. And my grandfather, unable essentially to have a proper job, he was a very promising physicist, he was able to move to the UK. And so when my parents had money, they were like, well, he's in the UK. Why don't we send you to a school near him? And so this experience of like, if you say the wrong thing, you're going to be punished. It wasn't theoretical to me. I saw it happen to my own family with my own eyes. It's, I know people are going to be listening to this and getting ahead of our conversation saying, wow, that sounds very familiar to what we're seeing now <laughs> where people literally lose their jobs, not for saying the wrong thing privately, but sometimes, but you know, say, the right, say the wrong thing publicly. Uh, do, does this traumatize you as a kid or do you not know any other normal than this? So he's like, oh, this is the way it is. And I don't even have a basis for comparison. I think that as a kid, I didn't feel traumatized by it because it wasn't you know, it was something I was aware of, but it had not a huge amount of impact on my life, actually, if, if I'm honest, because I was just a kid. I didn't really those things didn't concern me. It was later when I came to the UK and I saw the contrast. You know, I, I remember it's quite a, a funny thing because it is you could nowadays they'd call it bullying. But like when I turned up at school, sp uh, barely spoke any English, spoke with thick Russian accent like this. And the kids, the other kids would like, you know, kids make fun of each other. So I'd make fun of them for something. They'd make fun of me for something else. And for me, it was like, you know, uh, it was my accent or, you know, Russia or whatever. And I would be like, don't say that. And they'd, be, they'd say, well, actually, it's a free country. You know, people don't say that anymore, but <laughs> but back then that was kind of what people thought, you know, and while, of course, you know, I didn't, you know, enjoy them teasing me in the same way that they didn't enjoy being teased by, by me about other shit, I've kind of took that on in, in maybe quite literally. And I thought, well, actually, this is a country, look, you can say things that are maybe offensive to some people, but you're allowed to speak. And coming from a society when you were not allowed to speak and your own parents had to protect themselves and protect you from expressing your actual opinions. You know, in the Soviet Union, we had several layers of kind of truth. There was what you said in public, what you said around the kitchen table, and then also what you'd say in your own mind when you were on your own. These were different layers of truth. Um, and so being in a country where that was less the case, that's what opened my eyes, really. And my granddad who was forced to flee the Soviet Union effectively or into exile from the Soviet Union, he always was immensely grateful for that. And 
he really thrived here in the UK, even though he had his life in many ways ruined by, you know, he couldn't really pursue his physics career. He had to uproot himself in, in his late 40s, early 50s, I think it was, that he moved to the UK, probably early 50s. Uh, and it's hard, you know, it's hard moving country with a different culture and different language at that age. But he 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 embedded himself very well here because actually, I think it, at heart, he was a Western minded person. He valued the things that we in the West in the West value. And so he always made me super aware of how important that is. And him and I disagreed about many things, but that was the thing that we, we actually uh, felt very close on. And so you came to the UK or were sent to the UK when you were, what, 13? Yeah, around that time, yeah. And so that's two years, give or, well, that's a few years after the collapse of the Soviet Union, just for those who can only imagine what that is like to, you know, from the West, it's a historic moment. Mm. Uh, from the East, I, I imagine it has to be immensely destabilizing and borderline terrifying. What happens when that happens and what happens to your family? Well, it's interesting that you say that because it's absolutely true. And I have a piece on my Substack called Why, Do, Why uh, Russians Support Vladimir Putin. Uh, and I talk about... Uh, the period between 1991 and when he comes to power in 1999. And it was a shit show. And people in the West are incapable of imagining. And I'm not exaggerating. I'm not trying to be special or anything. You cannot imagine that. And let me explain what I mean, right? Imagine, think about your life right now, your job, your career, your family, your house, your bank account, your savings, everything that you do in your life, your hobbies, everything, right? Imagine that, through no fault of your own, one day, none of that exists anymore. Your bank doesn't exist anymore. The savings that you had in it, they disappeared, right? Uh, your career, well, guess what? In the Soviet Union, being a scientist, being in the military, uh, being a teacher, being some kind of public official, these were all highly respected, well-paid jobs, right? Early 90s Russia, no one gives a shit about science. People are trying to survive. So scientists went from being respected academics. I literally remember walking to school, and, and this was normal. I was probably about 10. I would walk for 15 minutes to a bus stop. I would take a 15-minute bus ride, and I'd get on, on the underground, and I'd take an hour uh, underground ride to my school. That was my journey to school at the age of 10. Right. And I remember outside every metro station, every underground station, there would be older people. I mean. They seemed very old to me now, so they were probably about 40 or something. <laughs> um, you know, selling their belongings, selling furniture, selling clothes, selling books, selling anything they could sell. Because, and these were quite often people that, I don't know, three weeks ago were respected people. Uh, and, and, career, when, job. and when you say respected, also career job, it's all, it's all employed by the state. So the, it, the state yeah. was paying them their healthy salaries for government jobs. They were respected. State, it, it collapses. Your employer, that's it. Uh, uh, let me ask the obvious question. To whom are they selling it? Like who has money to buy things at this point other than the political elite class? Well, it was also a time of opportunity, right? Because when, when the system collapses, uh, things have to be built from the ground up. So if you don't have any banks, someone has got to create a bank. If you don't have any private businesses to sell and buy things or import goods, et cetera, uh, someone has to do that. And so there, were, there was a class of people, and my dad was one of them. You know, he, he, Him and his friends started a small construction company, and then a year later, it done so well, they bought another company, and then that company started one of Russia's first banks. Uh, I, I, that was a crazy time. Like You can't imagine it, but that's who it was. So there was a, a, 
a lot of poverty, but also a lot of opportunity. Uh, and so there were people who could afford to buy these things because they they would they'd come up with something new, they'd adjusted better than others. Um, but you know, imagine you're one of these people, and then the war in Chechnya breaks out. Uh, and so if you are, you know, a respected former academic in your 40s, suddenly your son's been sent off to war, uh, and your daughter. I mean, you know, in the Soviet Union, it didn't have prostitutes. It didn't exist. I remember in 1990s Russia, as a kid, I didn't know what prostitutes were, but I saw these women selling themselves, basically, on the street. It was normal. You know, you'd be walking along the street, you'd be driving your car, and somebody, a woman would knock on your door and be like, you know, $20 for a blowjob or whatever it was. Literally like that. It was insane. Uh, so seeing that kind of collapse, it, you can't imagine how destabilizing that is to people, how destabilizing, destabilizing that is to people's psyches. And guess what? When the shit hits the fan, and as you know, I'm, you know, the reason for our misunderstanding was about the war in Ukraine and Putin. I'm no fan of his, but the craving for stability is where his support comes from. Because after eight years, there was one of the years, and it wasn't even like 91, it was, I think it was 98, inflation was 74%. Imagine that. Imagine that your salary basically gets devalued by the time, you know, if you paid on, get paid on a monthly basis, your salary is worth nearly half by the end of the year, what it was at the beginning. Yeah. Right? That is insane. And so the, the impact that has on people is traumatic. And so this is one of the reasons that, you know, in the West, we think democracy and liberty and freedom, these are great things. But to a Russian person, to many Russian people, not all, of course, but to many Russian people, that is what they think about when they think about democracy. That period. That's what democracy is. Chaos. Absolute chaos. The end of your life as you know it. Misery, poverty, the suicide rate was insane, drug addiction was insane, emigration, the brain drain, you know, mi millions of people died or left Russia in that period of time. The, you know, the population fell significantly during that period. It was extremely traumatic for people. Uh, it was a very, very chaotic period. And I remember as a kid. That's amazing. Um, and so then your, your, your dad sends you to the UK. Uh, mm -hmm. Do they, you go to school there. I, I learned watching your podcast with Zuby that you went to school with Zuby. Yeah, um, we did. Yeah. Did your he was actually in my house. Uh, he was a couple of years younger. Uh, so I should have been the one beating him up, but uh, even then it was not likely to happen. <laughs> I don't know how big you are. How tall are you, if I may ask now? I'm 5'9". Uh, Zuby isn't actually that tall, but he's pretty hench, uh, and he was already kind of like a, a big guy. 5'9", you got, you got three and a half inches on me. Um, <laughs> so you, you go to the UK. Do your parents ever join you? Uh, no, they never moved here. So what happened with my dad is after his business career, uh, he was asked to be a junior minister in Boris Yeltsin's cabinet, one of his cabinets. Uh, and while he was there, Russian politics was extremely dodgy and messy at the time. Another minister orchestrated a campaign against him to remove him so that that minister could steal more money for himself from the, the public coffers. And so my dad eventually ended up fleeing Russia under a false name, uh, being falsely accused of tax evasion. Um, and he ended up in a, in a small country called Armenia, which is where my family live now. He's since been cleared of all these uh, bullshit charges, but that, that is his, his path. And so that's where they stayed. And, and by the way, the money that they'd had, uh, a lot of it was confiscated. This is why it, it took many years for my dad to be vindicated of the charges, because in a normal country, what happens is if the police come and arrest you uh, and seize things from you so that you don't flee the country or whatever, 
that that stuff, whether it's jewelry or cash or whatever, which is what they took from my my parents, uh, sits in an evidence locker, right? It's sealed, it's locked, and whatever. Well, that's not what happens in Russia. And so the reason they would never close the case is they they would have to give that stuff back, and that stuff was no longer there. So it wasn't until my dad worked this out and said, told them through his lawyer, you know what? Keep the keep the watches, keep the jewelry, keep the money. And then they were like, oh, okay, cool. Well, in that case, you're innocent. <laughs> That's how it went. Yeah, well, that, no, it's how you say they don't do that in the West. Then you have this thing called civil forfeiture where they do something very similar, but just under the, under the pretext of law. Uh, mm. So you get to the UK, very little no English. You're, you're um, not assimilating, but you are integrating into an entirely new society. Mm. Briefly, like that transition, but I, I, I just got to get to the, you know, the, the crux of this now. You lived through that in the Soviet Union, Mm. And I think a lot of people are saying we are seeing elements of this in the West right now. When I was at the Ottawa protest, and I'm, I'm talking to people from Hungary, Romania, Venezuela, mm. and they're saying, I see what I fled my country happening mm. here. And yet when, you know, I'm second generation Canadian, when I say it, other, you know, second, third generation Canadians who've never lived through it say, Viva, you're being hyperbolic. Don't make those comparisons. Mm. You don't know what you're talking about. You've never lived through it. You have. Do you yeah. see the same trend happening in the West now that you live through in the East? Well, I haven't been to Canada, so I obviously can't speak about Canada. But from afar, I mean, uh, f- you know, freezing people's bank accounts because they have the wrong opinions does seem a little, uh, a little uh, wrong to me, uh, to put it mildly. Uh, I think you are right and the people are right in the sense that the direction of travel is definitely towards that kind of Soviet-style authoritarian pro-censorship society. And they're right to say we're not there. You know, we're not in that position. I, I think that's also fair to say because, of course, in the Soviet Union, it was the state that did this. And if the state didn't like what you said and if you carried on, they would literally put you in a prison camp, right? So it's a little bit different. But the direction of travel is not healthy. And uh, I, I actually, you know, people would have seen probably my recent speech at Oxford Union, but I gave another speech uh, in which I talk about uh, why saving the West is important. And one of the, the quotes I, I gave there was from a guy called George Kennan, who was the U.S. ambassador to the Soviet Union, or he worked as part of, of, the, of, the, of the team for relations with the Soviet Union. And he warned the West that the, the greatest mistake that we could make here in the West is to become more like the thing that we're fighting. And this is my concern with the West. These ideas you know, whatever you want to call them, extreme progressivism, wokeness or whatever. These are not Western ideas. This is a new form of Marxism. I mean, you could say Marxism is a Western idea because it was generated in in the West, but it was not really applied in the West as nearly as vigorously as it has been elsewhere. And so I think that we are starting to apply uh, some concepts which took hold in the East in places like Russia and the Soviet Union and China back here in the West. And if you read my book, most people don't know. Do you know where political correctness comes from? I know now because I've watched a lot of your podcasts. Right, right, right. right, right. <laughs> well, you, ex- just, you explain it so it doesn't look like I'm stealing your knowledge. No, that's fine. But most people don't know. People think political correctness is about, you know, not offending minorities, being respectful, being polite. It's about not offending people and whatever. That's not where it comes from at all. Political correctness was invented in the Soviet Union in the early days of the Soviet Union. Uh, and the point of it was nothing to do with protecting anyone, protecting anyone's feelings, making anyone feel comfortable, avoiding offense or anything like that. It was about saying to people, well, what you're saying is factually correct, but it is 
politically incorrect. And what that meant is it is not convenient to the party dogma. And that is precisely how, in my opinion, increasingly this weapon of censorship and political correctness around speech is being used. It's about saying, well, look, you know, maybe you're right about this, but we don't care. What we care about is it's offensive to people. We care about it's not convenient to the party line, to the thing that we're trying to advance. So if you try to have a conversation about, you know, for example, to me, I'm massively against the idea of positive discrimination. I think it's an abomination, right? There is no such thing as positive discrimination. There's just discrimination. And the fact that you personally decided that this type of it is positive doesn't make it positive. It's just another form of discrimination. But if you want to have a conversation about diversity, equity, and inclusion, no one is going to challenge you on the facts of it. People are just going to say, well, you're racist or you're bigoted or whatever. Um, and that is a way to prevent you from challenging the dogma. Um, so we've become sovietized in our thinking. I, I, I'm wary of people who go, well, you know, it's just like the gulags. It's not like the gulags. What it is, is a way of thinking that leads potentially down that path. So I'm not happy about the direction of travel, but also, of course, we shouldn't, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that we're still the, the freest people in the history of the world. This is true. And I, I, I say like the dismissing of the comparisons because they're not identical. Well, it, that's a that's a cheap way of actually getting out of recognizing mm -hmm. the patterns because you compare because they're not identical. It's the de necessary definition of a comparison. Um, and people sort of tend to think that Nazi Germany, Soviet Union is only characterized at one point in time, ignoring mm -hmm. the lead up to it, where you can find a lot of similarities in the lead up. Um, but you, you, and the you, aftermath, by the way, because when people think about the Soviet Union, they think you're comparing it to Stalinism. As I just told you, in the late 80s, the situation was much better. You weren't being shot for having the wrong opinion, but you were still being punished. And that's more the type of society that we're, in my opinion, potentially at risk of heading towards. So you're in the UK now. You're in the land of the free. At least it was at the time they weren't locking up people for... Uh... You know, making Nazi pug jokes on the, mm. although that's Scotland, but what, you know, close enough. Um, when do you, how do you get into comedy? I mean, that's actually probably point number one. How do you get into comedy? Well, I always, see, I actually got into comedy, I think, somewhat by mistake in that I always thought that comedy was a place for people who thought differently, who wanted to challenge the prevailing narratives and do it with humor. And the people that inspired me were George Carlin and Bill Hicks and so on. And so, I, when I was doing my translation uh, business, I got to a point where people started to invite me to talk, to give talks and conferences about how to do things. And I quickly worked out, like, if you, if you want to, if you don't want to like start handing out pillows and blankets during your talks, you better make people laugh. So then people would be like, well, maybe you should try being a comedian because, because they were laughing at the jokes I was making. Um, and I, and then I was like, oh, cool. Well, I feel quite strongly about some of the stuff that's happening in the culture to some extent, and I have a few things to say, and comedy is an interesting way of doing that. And so I started doing stand-up mainly through that, uh, and then quite quickly discovered that I, that isn't what the mainstream of the comedy industry, certainly in the UK, is about at all. It's massively conformist, uh, extremely woke, way more woke than society in general, um, and uh, very kind of, there's, there, there is an ideology and you will follow it to be kind, you know, like that's kind of how I found it, which was to me quite a shock actually. Um, and so um, I've, I've ended up, you know, during the pandemic, um, I stopped doing it because trigonometry started, you know, took off and it started taking up so much of my time. And now 
Uh, we do three live streams a week, which is me and Francis, you know, joking about what's going on. We call them raw shows and it's super edgy, offensive satire of the comedy of the day of whatever news articles and whatever is coming up. And I'm really at home doing that. Uh, where stand up, I think it was kind of a transitionary career for me. It wasn't quite the right fit. When, and when did you get into it? Are we talking like 2015 to 2014, 2015? Yeah. Right and, and that is, it's funny. Like I, I wasn't awake. I say like not in the cliche sense. I wasn't paying attention to this back then. I had started my own law firm. I was like, you know, 24 seven working in law, not paying attention to it. 2016 election of Trump is when I started realizing what the hell was going on in the world. But that is when the woke stuff really started. Uh, Jordan Peterson started raising the flag shortly after that. Uh, so you, you you venture out of stand-up, although you, you you hone your skills, you learn some stuff. Mm. Pandemic hits, and then you start mm. trigonometry? No, no. We started trigonometry in April 2018. And by the time the pandemic hit, we'd kind of got to a point where you got to understand, we started from the ground up. So two no-name comedians, no profile, no connections, no money, uh, no studio, no producer, no cameras, no mic, nothing. And we just started it from the ground up. And as we were doing stand-up, we built it up over time. Um, and we got to a point where when the pandemic hit, it was already big enough that we that was the first time we ever took even a small salary out of doing trigonometry. We hadn't made any money. And any money we made, we put into a bank account and didn't touch it because we knew that we were going to need it at some point. Um, and when the pandemic hit, we were like, well, we can't do stand-up. But what we can do is everyone's at home, we're at home, let's start doing more live streams, let's start doing more than one interview a week. And we just started pumping out more content and our audience grew massively and people loved the fact that we were putting more stuff out. And you know, the, the most common thing when people come up to us, which occasionally happens in the street, they go, you guys got me through the pandemic. Because it was a really difficult time for a lot of people and having three, at that time it was four raw shows a week for an hour and a half, you know, taking the tip piss, as we say in this country, out of what was going on, you know, pushing back with satire, but also with just uh, indignation against the authoritarianism that we saw in this country and around the world when it came to lockdowns and vaccine passports and vaccine mandates, etc. A lot of people felt very alone in that time. And they needed to see that they're not alone. They needed to see that there are other people out there who agree with them. And it kind of became a hub for people who, you know, who who were perfectly reasonable, normal people. They, they, they weren't anti-vax crazies who, who thought, you know, vaccines caused by five, you know, vaccines give you AIDS or whatever it is, or whatever, whatever people believe. They just felt that the government was using this as an opportunity to, to engage in a bit of a power grab and going a bit far in terms of the restrictions. And um, the government shouldn't do this in the West. And we kind of became a voice for those people for that small uh Oh, yeah. Rachel says trigonometry saved my life. Um, so I hope that's not true because that is a very sad statement, Rachel. <laughs> no, um, you know what? Constantine, like people, first of all, people were going crazy. I mean, I, I think in a sense, if people want to say I've gone crazy publicly over an extended period of time, say it. I mean, I can understand people viewing it that way because I didn't look like this and I didn't think like this four years ago, but the world mm -hmm. wasn't off the flipping rails four years mm -hmm. ago. I, I didn't see neighbors calling in the police because their other neighbor was outside too close to someone in a park four years ago. Uh, and people needed an outlet and people needed someone who, you know, I, I hope kept things uh, in the realm of reality or in the realm of digestibility. And I yeah. know you did that. And so it's, it's, uh, people mean it. It's, um, 
Yeah, no, no, I, I was only, I was just a throw. I, I, like, I know, I know. But things went crazy here, man. Like Francis and I, we went for a walk. We went to, um, once they started to open things up a little bit, we went for a walk and we uh, we dropped into uh, this open air market. Open air market, they sell food and drinks and whatever. And we were standing there uh, and we bumped into a friend of ours and we were chatting to her. And this guy in a high-vis jacket and like shades came over and went, sorry, no talking. Who the fuck are you? You know, but that, and I think that's kind of the point that we got to is things were very, very strange for, for a period of time. And we even talked about moving the whole thing over to Florida or Texas at one point, because it was like, well, if they do this other thing, then this is like, that's past the line. Uh, thankfully, we didn't go as far as, as that. Um, but yeah, man, so the, the, we already had something before lockdown happened. And during lockdown, we really... We made it a full-time job for everybody. And now we're at a point where we've got about 10 people working for us. It's We've just built our own studio from basically the ground up. Not the, quite the ground up, but it was an empty room that now has walls and you know lights and all this stuff. Um, so it's exciting time. It's a really exciting time. Yeah, it's got you got the neon light in the back. That's, that's I think, my next investment above and beyond my um, my former license plate. Hold on, let, yeah. let me, let me that, that was my Quebec license plate. Best best three hundred bucks I ever spent. Um, so you've had some like amazing guests on, and mm. the one I, I want to get to one because the the Sam Harris meltdown, and we're going to get to the speech at Oxford, and then we're going to get to you know international stuff, conflict in Russia to bring everything back. Um, the, Sam Harris, when that interview occurs, like you, you're a good person. I don't think you have a, a malicious bone in your body. You don't conduct an interview with the intended purpose of destroying someone or a, you know when that's happening. And, and I zoomed in on your face, and I think I'm a pretty decent judge of character. Were mm. you flabbergasted by where that interview went with Sam Harris? And did you digest or, or compute in real time what was going to happen as a result of this uh, podcast? So the second part, no, because I didn't... Uh, I, the, the number one rule that we have at Trigonometry is it's all about the guest. We want you to come on Trigonometry and have a good experience. And so to see what happened to Sam, even though I disagree very strongly with what he said... I am not happy that that's what happened. And I've made that clear a number of times. And Francis and everyone here feels the same way. Uh, I'm grateful that Sam gave us the time. He's a busy guy and with, with a big audience, and he didn't have to do that. He, he was very generous with his time. It, we had a lot of tech issues on the day, and he was very patient. Really, he was a really good human being. Um, and so to see him being you know, mobbed in that way didn't give me any pleasure whatsoever. Whatsoever. And... I wasn't, because I don't think in that way, I wasn't thinking, oh, this is going to go viral. I was just thinking, wow, Sam is kind of like, this is, he's kind of gone in a direction that I don't agree with, like badly. And I actually, I don't know if you, if you watch the full interview, I actually wanted to move on. And, and he was like, no, no, let's talk more about this. And that's when he came out with the, you know, kids in the basement and all of that. <laughs> and, you know, I, but even the kids in the basement is just a metaphor. People made too much out of that for my liking. But it was what he said about how, you know, a, a left-wing conspiracy to deny the presidency to Donald Trump was justified. That's when I was like, I mean, you can have that opinion, but then you're not in a democracy anymore. Then that, that's something else. Like, if you want to live in that society, that's cool, but let's call it something else. That's, that's a, you, you know, I don't know what that is, dictatorship of, of left-wing progressives or dictatorship of, the people who want to control like that isn't a democracy 
Um, and so I was just stunned, really. Uh, I didn't know what to make of it. What's interesting is we actually do questions for our local supporters that goes behind the paywall. And I would say the stuff he said about COVID on that is even more controversial, but because fewer people saw it and people didn't clip it, um, it was uh, it didn't get as, as much of, of the attention. And by the way, we never made any any hay of that clip that went out. Someone else put it out, by the way, a guy who I think is a piece of shit that tweeted it. I don't, um, I don't know who tweeted it out originally. And I, I saw, I didn't see the entire interview, but I saw more for context just to be sure. Um, but yeah, sorry, just. Yeah, 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 this is fine. So the guy that tweeted it, he's the guy that goes after a lot of people uh, and he like tries to deliberately present them in a bad light. But I mean, what Sam said is what Sam said. And I think I can see why people were pissed off about it. Sure. See, people look at um, COVID and say, like, people went off the deep end during COVID, but it, it mm. is this, I don't want to say Soviet, but Soviet-esque or fascist-esque or censorship-esque stuff. It, it started well before COVID, and then COVID was, was what really ramped it up on steroids, but it started with Trump, where the ends justified the means, mm. um, and anything could be justified in order to prevent what was being falsely depicted as a, a catastrophic Nazi in the White House, um, and it started then, and it's Sam in that clip showed, and, and in subsequent clips showed the mentality, which I think is emblematic or symptomatic of the time, but started back back in 2016. Have, have you spoken to Sam since that interview? Yeah. So the first thing I emailed him was just to check in and make sure he was okay because I know how painful it is or can be if you're getting mobbed and attacked by loads of people. Uh, it's not an easy thing to deal with. Uh, so we, 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 he was, uh, he, he actually was very magnanimous. He said, you guys did a great job. Uh, you know, thanks for having me on, you know, and, uh, you didn't really seem phased by it. Um, and then we also had another chat about him potentially coming back to talk about uh, Twitter files and why he left Twitter and whatever. And he wasn't interested, but I'm sure we'll have him back at some point to talk about other stuff. But, but I agree with you. Look, I think COVID broke a lot of people's brains left and right. Um, and, one of the dangers of emotional dysregulation of that nature is it causes threat misassessment. And if you actually thought that, you know, Justin Trudeau is actually a fascist and is actually a Nazi who is actually going to kill people and actually going to put them in camps, then what Sam said would, would be justifiable, right? Because if, if the next Hitler was literally in the White House, well, maybe a left-wing conspiracy theory to, to deny him the presidency would be legitimate. Where I disagree with Sam is on his assessment of Donald Trump as a threat. And I think the bar for conspiracies to deny the presidency and the democracy should be so high that the guy literally has to come out, you know, quoting Mein Kampf and, and doing the Nazi salute before you get to that point. Well, uh, I say just on the Justin Trudeau thing, the, the, the dude has locked people up. The dude has. Yeah. I don't. Are you familiar with the euthanasia in Canada, which is? I like, am. Yeah. I know the, the guy's the guy's crazy, man. Yeah. <laughs> I I I would. I think he's a bona fide psychopath. Like like a clinical. Mm. I, I I Jordan Peterson has more you know psychological training than I do. Right. Uh, but I don't defer to him. I defer to my own assessment here. Uh, okay, so it's very interesting. Um, were there other notable like what's the most notable interview you think you've given on trigonometry that you've had that you can. That we've done with, with yeah. well, we've had Jordan Peterson on a couple of times. Uh, I, I think the one that's got the most views as an interview is our interview with Posey Parker, uh, who is a women's rights campaigner. Who and this was early days, so this was probably late 2018, early 2019. I'm pretty bad with dates, but something like that. 
uh, and this is at a time when the trans conversation wasn't being had anything like the way it's being had now. And it was an interview that um, the the title was Trans Women Aren't Women, uh, which was like explosive at the time. YouTube took it down, called it hate speech. Politically, co- politically incorrect. Constantly. Right, <laughs> exactly. We, we kicked up a big stink in the, in the newspapers here and eventually got reinstated. And, you know, Streisand effect, once something gets suppressed, it gets huge numbers. And it was good because you can see me and Francis, two fairly liberal-minded comedians who've never thought about this issue very carefully, who know it's a minefield, who know that this is a risk to their careers, and we are trying to talk to her, but we're also principal people who are interested in the truth. So this lady comes in. She's very polite. She's very sensible. She's basically dropping truth bombs left, right, and center. And we are like, ah, ah, ah. And we're trying to like survive our way through the interview by at the same time being intellectually honest, but also trying not to get canceled. And you mm-hmm. can see two people change their minds in real time. So it's, it's a kind of piece of trigonometry history that will always stay with us. But the interview that I'm most proud of, actually, that we've done is with a woman called Ella Hill, uh, who was a victim. Of, I don't know if you're familiar with the grooming gangs. You probably would be uh, if you well, listen to uh, Joe Rogan's story. I, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm yeah. very familiar with it. I used to follow. Yeah. I mean, I follow. I was familiar with Tommy Robinson until he mm. was unpersoned. I mean, I, I was following that. It's atrocious and people don't know the details or the racial component, a, a racial component in terms of the politicizing of it. Someone's going to snip and clip that out of context. But yeah. why the scandal was buried was for political correct racial reasons which most people right. don't know and it's elaborate so that people's minds well, can be blown. so so basically up to half a million women and uh, children young girls uh, were sexually abused by groups of men uh, in this country over a period of 40 years uh, it was these crimes were racially aggravated in that these men were mostly from a south asian background uh, so bangladeshi and pakistani background and they were targeting specifically uh, white local and hindu girls almost in, invariably um and um so these were racially aggravated crimes if you target other people because of their race that's a racially aggravated crime but instead of being treated as a racially aggravated crime by racist men who were sexually abusing women and children uh it was covered up by the police by social services by the government uh because of fears of being uh you know seen as racist being a problem for quote-unquote diversity etc in a gigantic scandal and we had one of the the victims on the show talking about this she's anonymized so you can't see her face she's a wonderful woman uh very beautiful person inside and out and um you know it's a brilliant conversation and what's weird about it is we're talking to a survivor of gang rape basically and it's funny it's a funny conversation. That's all credit to Ella because she plays along and she's, you know, we're making jokes with her because we know that we can. Um, and that's kind of, to me, that's what sums up our show. We want to talk about difficult subjects, but also with enough levity that the conversation can actually be had. Uh, without getting too far into it, because this is in and of itself like a, a show on its own, mm. um, the, the, the racial um, ethnic element to that, which could have caused some problems to political correctness was there not also an element that there were people in the police who were people in the police people in parliament people in high positions that were also benefiting for lack of a better word from this from this ring of 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 human exploitation and they were covering up for prominent figures in in high positions 
I'm not aware of that. When you say benefiting, in, in what sense? You mean participating? Uh, participating, in clients. Like, like uh, participating. I I'm not aware of any of that. I think there was one guy who may have had some tangential involvement, but I I'm not sure that that is the case. Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, have you ever had Tommy Robinson on? Uh, okay, so this is this is it. the the political correctness around that. There was a tweet that went uh, that was retweeted that went viral that said, um, "Bury the story because it's going to make certain ethnic groups look bad." Um, well, the exact quote was, and it's worth repeating exactly, was these girls need to shut their mouths for the sake of diversity. And there was nothing ironic, sarcastic, dark no. humor in that. This it was, was and a Labour MP retweeted it and then deleted her her retweet. You never with with Twitter, you know, I, I, I'm not defending that tweet and there's no but to it. It's actually just going to be the segue into the next part of this discussion. Twitter, it's, it's very difficult to read sarcasm. Sometimes it's very difficult to read. I had the thought the other day, like when it comes to human interaction, sometimes you can say the same thing and do yeah. the same thing in a loving manner or in a hateful manner. And right. you know the difference in real life. But when it comes to the written word, you can't tell the difference. So people want to know your position on uh, Russia, Ukraine war. I, I, and instead of me saying what I think it is, this is like the good time just to you flesh out, explain your, your position on this. And I want to try to like bring it back to uh, the West turning into the East. Mm -hmm. And then maybe some people thinking the East becoming more West than the West is at this point, your, your overall take on this, um, yeah. Given your background, so that, what is it? That, that latter point is a myth. And I think a lot of people have gone so far off the deep end. They think that Putin's Russia is this great sacred Christian, you know, the savior of Christendom. I mean, that could not be further from the truth. Um, my position is very simply this. Uh, I believe it is in the West interest to prevent uh, irredentist Russia from expanding uh, ever further westwards. Uh, I understand the argument about NATO expansion provoking Russia, but what people never seem to think about is, okay, let's say NATO didn't expand after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania, uh, Poland wouldn't be part of NATO. Do you think that they would still be independent countries? Uh, they wouldn't be. Uh, this is what Russia does every time that it's able to centralize and coordinate power. Uh, it looks outward and it looks to recapture territories that it sees as its own as, or as being in its sphere of influence. So, um, my view is that uh, it is in our interest, particularly in the interest of the United States and the UK, uh, to prevent Russia from doing that. Uh, and uh, Ukrainian, uh, the Ukrainians want to defend their country. Uh, and it's an incredibly effective way for us to do that by providing them with the support that they need. That's my opinion. I've never advocated for any country in which I'm not a taxpayer to do that. I don't tell Americans you guys should be giving your taxpayer dollars to, to Ukraine. Uh, but as a taxpayer in the UK, I support my country doing that. The question is going to be this, though. I say financing conflict. The uh, the the Russia expansion to reclaim territory that it lost, you know, previously. Mm. I mean, people could understand that as well. When you go to the Ukraine in particular, uh, and you, you you back it up, I, I consider you to be more educated on this than me, as many other people. But I think I think I've gotten the grasp on it now. When you go back to the Maidan revolution in 2014. Mm -hmm. And how that plays into this, where do you not get the sense, notwithstanding what you might feel are, I don't know, they call them imperialistic tendencies of Putin, can, can barely manage his own country, might not have global domination on the, on the checklist. Um, but the revolution starting in 2014, do you, not, do you not see potentially Western interference, Western meddling 
It, every world. revolution has Western meddling. So, uh, not Western meddling, every revolution has foreign meddling. If you think about the American Revolution, did the French not help quite a lot? Uh, did, were they not involved in that? Uh, every revolution, whenever there is a revolution, foreign actors will attempt to interfere. But what actually happened in 2014 was um, President Yanukovych uh, promised the people of Ukraine after being elected that he would sign a trade deal with the European Union. Uh, and under pressure from Putin, he changed his mind and uh, promised to sign one with Russia instead. A, a bunch of students went out and protested about this. They, there weren't very many of them. They weren't particularly disruptive. And uh, Yanukovych sent in riot police which, who, who beat them up. And that's the point at which ordinary people went out into the street to protest about the treatment of these students. Again, under Putin's direct instructions, and we have phone call logs from Putin and Yanukovych. They were speaking many times every day when this was happening. Um, they uh, cracked down on the new protesters again, tried to beat them up. Uh, there was police with you know, all sorts of t brutal tactics, brutalizing the protesters. And that's why the Ukrainians came out into the streets in the tens of thousands in Maidan. Now, did America, uh, was America upset about this? Was America unhappy that Ukraine was moving in a pro-Western direction? Of course not. But this was a country that was a puppet of the of the of of the Russians, and um, they reacted to the fact that it was no longer going to be that in 2014 by biting chunks off Ukraine. Um, and um, this is this is the problem that Ukraine has always faced. It's not it's not really a country that's existed for a very long time because it lies on the border between two great civilizations, and it's always been disputed territory. It's a great tragedy of 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 the lives of the people who live there. Now, do you find uh, these, there are certain, and I, people are not going to, people are going to vehemently disagree with you. People are going to say this, you know, uh, there is a little bit of um, demonizing and canonizing on both ends. But mm -hmm. when I, when I look at these, and I don't think I've gotten blackpilled, but I'm, I'm not far off. When I look at some countries saying Putin is a, is a murderous dictator and that he may be, uh, but then you look at uh, the West and the things that they've done, uh, the things that they've done in terms of violating sovereign integrity of foreign nations, uh, mm -hmm. fa fabricating wars that lead mm -hmm. to the deaths of hundreds of thousands of innocent civilians. It, part of me, this is also bringing it back to the discussion about, you know, not political correctness, but uh, doing evil while cloaking it with benevolence, which is sort of the way of the left today. I, I see similarities in the way Western governments have carried out their atrocities. They do it in a manner that allows them nonetheless to judge and create international conflict on the basis of other dictators doing it not so politely. So Putin. Th that's bad. why that's why I was so vehemently opposed to the war in Iraq, the war in Afghanistan, the intervention in Syria, the intervention in Libya. I disagree with the West foreign policy on all of those countries. But this isn't the same. Uh, this is a country that's been invaded uh, that is asking for help defending itself. This isn't Iraq where we just came in and decided to remove the person who runs that country. We haven't invaded Russia. We haven't tried to depose Putin. Uh, it's not Afghanistan. It's not Syria, Libya, where we're trying to invade a country or destabilize it to create regime change. Uh, this is Russia's. See, this is what gets me, and this is why I, you know, I don't get pissed off with people anymore. But I, I used to get quite pissed off with people uh, when this first happened because they were like, "Well, I'm, I'm anti-war and I'm anti-imperialist." It's like, no, no, no. What you are is pro-Russia expanding its empire. That's what's happening, right? And if you're anti-war. Well, you, you can't then advocate for policies that allow an invader to win. 
that would be being pro-war. So when, you know, you mentioned earlier financing conflict. I, I mean, that's a way of phrasing it that I disagree with because you're not financing conflict. You're allowing people to defend themselves who are being slaughtered. It's, that, this is going to be the fundamental uh, one screen, two films, which I, uh, the, the, the bottom line to all of this is I think there's room for good, good natured disagreement. Mm. And what, what, what upset me is that my tweets, which uh, this morning I tweeted out. No, don't worry about it. Why don't we just talk about the issue? Forget about the tweets. I'm not pissed off with you. Okay, no, no, I was going to say like, it's all good. Even, even yesterday. Well, with Ben Shapiro, not to, you know, going back and, and, and assessing his position on vaccine where you, uh, it, it's disagreement, but anyhow, so I, that's that'll be a separate issue. I think people are never going to agree on this. The only question is, you know, what what is going to be the solution? Because people are going to look at you, Constantine, and say what you're suggesting is uh, victory at all costs. No, um, I, when did I suggest that? Well, because you're saying if you're if you're dealing with a Hitler, if you, if people view when did I call him Hitler? Well, no, no well, okay. Let, let, if you're dealing with someone who you see, think has see, this, this is what people who think what you think think about people who think what I think. Well, but no, because... I don't say any of those things. I didn't say Putin was Hitler. I didn't, you said he was a murderous dictator, now he is, but I don't use that as a reason. I said it is in the West's interests to prevent an irredentist Russia from expanding westwards. That's all I said, right? Nothing about Hitler, nothing about victory at all costs, right? I didn't say any of those things. No, no, well, first of all, one does not have to say Hitler in order to uh, conceptualize a Hitler-esque someone bent on territorial conquest. But let's, okay, you're right. I don't think that was actually people's problem with Hitler. I think it was more to do with the Holocaust and everything. But look, I am not like, oh, Putin is bad. We must, like, that's not what I'm saying. Putin is doing what any Russian leader who's achieved the consolidation of power that he has achieved would do in his position, right? And it's the West's job, in my opinion, to prevent that from happening if we want to remain the world superpower. And by the way, uh, I translated several of Putin's speeches. So it's not like I have some caricature of him. As a professional former translator, I translated the speeches and I put them on my substack. So you can hear from the horse's mouth what he wants. And both him and Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, have been extremely clear what this is all about. They want what they call a new world order. And that means pushing America off its pedestal and creating this multipolar world, right? What do they mean by that? They mean a world in which China and Russia and the United States are equals. All right. Now, we know that that is a fundamentally unstable construction. You cannot have an absence of hierarchy in human civilization. What happens is somebody will attempt to vie for leadership, and what you're going to get is actual World War III if that happens. Right? I am very comfortable with an American-dominated world. That's what I want to see, and that's why it's in our interest to make sure that it remains the case. See, that's where the issue – one, if one is comfortable with an American-dominated world, you're mm -hmm. comfortable with a world in which – the, the the atrocities, the war crimes are just no, committed. No, no, well, no, 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 just, no. Well, because, no, I am against those things. Those invading Iraq and invading Afghanistan was not necessary for the United States to remain a superpower in the world. Those are foreign policy mistakes that I disagree with. The same with Syria, the same with Libya. You don't have to buy into the neocon project to think that America is a force for good in the world, which it is. Well, getting to that, the uh, America being a force for good in the world and, you know, the Russian New World Order, it, it does seem or it does feel like America itself is working towards a New World Order itself as well by forming basically a, a, a global type government, which is why I think people are actually sort of amenable to looking at, at Putin and Russia, not China so much, uh, but Putin and Russia as sort of the resistors to what people see as the new world order of the West, which is dominated by all of the things that you noticed 
in Russia back in the mm. day. Censorship of free speech, censorship of mm -hmm. free thought, getting people to believe the absurd that men yeah. can be women, women can be men, and that, okay. you know, the people in Chernobyl were not radioactive. It was just in their heads. Right. So what, uh, you don't think this happens in Russia now? Uh, well, I, actually, I could tell you this. I, I don't know what happens in Russia now. Okay, I'm so gonna... in Russia now, if you call the war in Ukraine a war, you go to prison for 10 years. Okay. That's what happens in Russia. Now, is, that, is, that, is, is that the multipolar world that you want to be living in? Well, but then the flip side to that is in the Ukraine, if you, um, if you act in a country, I don't even know if you're allowed to even say things anymore in the Ukraine. Uh, there you are. It's, it's, just as, it's just as tyrannical as in Russia, but for the good. No, no. In Ukraine, what's happening, this is a country at war that's defending itself and it operates under wartime rules, right? All this stuff about how he's banned the Orthodox Church, complete bullshit. What he banned is the Russian Orthodox what, one Church. One element, yeah. That, 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 that yeah. got sort of blown up. Who were open collaborators with Russia. And I know this because I have members of my family who are part of that church who were saying to me on the day the invasion happened, I am so glad they've invaded, right? So I know about these people. People say Zelensky's banned political opponents. Oh, no, he banned Viktor Medvedchuk, whose daughter's godfather is one Vladimir Putin, who's been funded for 20 years from Russia to create an alternative power structure in Ukraine so that when Russia invades, this guy can take over and lead. This is why, you know, all these Scott Ritters and all these other people are like, oh, you know, the, the, they invaded with only a, a small number of troops because they're not really trying to take over Ukraine. No, they invaded with so few troops is because Putin's intelligence was telling him that Ukraine was about to fold. We've got loads of people on board. We just take their airports, we get Zelensky, and then we've got the country. That's why they invaded with a small number of troops and got the asses kicked, right? And the reason Zelensky's battling these people is they're open collaborators with the enemy. What did the United States do when you were, they were attacked at Pearl Harbor? Took 120,000 Japanese Americans and threw them in internment camps. Yeah, right? they, Zelensky, they, they committed... Zelensky hasn't done that. Uh, well, and, I, and I'm no fan of Zelensky. I did not approve of his election. I thought he was a bit of an idiot, frankly. And he's actually shown himself to be a very courageous and principled leader in a very difficult situation. Uh, so, and for all these idiots on the internet, this is what really pisses me off. These guys on fucking Twitter going, oh, Zelensky is this. Well, why don't you go and lead a country at war? Why don't you actually put your life on the line if you're so courageous instead of criticizing people whose name you didn't know until the invasion happened? Well, I'll tell you this, okay, and this actually, it, it comes back to something in the beginning where you say, look, if you're going to have a conspiracy to really prevent a Hitler from rising to power, it mm. really had better be Hitler. And now yeah. it's like, it sort of seems like it's been watered down where you can ban political opponents if they're related to someone who's a political adversary. Mm. No, no, not related, funded by, in order to create an alternative power structure and openly collaborating with the enemy. And this guy was exchanged in the prisoner exchange by Vladimir Putin for like hundreds of people. That's how valuable he is to Russia, right? So this is an enemy collaborator. This is like a Hitler agent in America. Oh, no, they banned him. God forbid. All right. Well, we're to, I, I think some of the chat says move on to another topic because po po politics really no, is I'm enjoying this. By the way, I get worked up talking about this, but it's nothing personal. I just I, the, the, I get annoyed with people spreading false narratives about this who don't understand what's actually well, no, happening. Because right, right now, it, it is, I'll say, a little bit of spin because there were some who said, yeah, he, he banned uh, all religion when it was that one specific. Not, that won't justify it to some people. And you say, well, we're at war, so war measures are normal. Yeah, that's great. We, we, we invoked the War Measures Act in Canada, and we 
saw what the yeah. government did with it. When the, go the government doesn't give up power once it takes it, and it invokes the Hold War on. Measures Act. No, but this is a country that's actually at war, unlike Canada. Well, it, it, well I mean, read Orwell's preface to Animal Farm. He talks about the fact, even Orwell talked about the fact that in wartime, censorship is quite acceptable for certain things. Orwell said the level of censorship we've had in Britain during the war was actually quite reasonable, right? When you're at war, the rules are different. Well, no, it's well, not the same. But wait, wait, well, first, you're saying they're really at war. There will be some people who say that it's they're reclaiming territory that wanted to join Russia in the first place, territory that was right. taken from the. Uh, so, and, and there's going to be. Well, let's talk about say, that if you want to talk about that. Well, I'll, I was going to just see how we can redefine the term war because whenever they do it, they say we're at war now. We're at war against the virus. We're at war against misinformation. Yeah, but come on, that's different. This is a country was, that's actual I, war. So, so, so we can disagree with what the Canadian government is doing without necessarily lumping everybody in into the same pot. Well, no, no, but now, right? so let's, okay, so then let's actually, let's get to this, that there are people mm. who will argue that this is not about global, con well, not global conquest, about broader conquest than the Donbass region, the, e the, mm. never, the eastern region of Ukraine, which voted or, you know, views itself as being a part of Russia or at least independent from Ukraine, uh, and that this is not a war, but this is rather to affirm the autonomy of those eastern states that view themselves either as autonomous or part of Russia. Okay. So now someone's going to say, "What's the retort to that?" We have to. We 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 can't. There's no. Well, so when, when so when Chechnya tries to break away from Russia, Russia is entitled to fight two wars and force them into submission, install their puppet in Kadyrov, and retain Chechnya as part of the Russian Federation. Right. I can tell you one thing. That's fine. No, well, no. I, I is that okay? I would not venture any opinion on Chechnya because my learning curve uh, on 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 the Ukraine Russia conflict has been yeah. steep enough. I just okay. remember certain things about. So my my point is, if a part of a country wants to break away, is that country entitled to protect its territorial integrity or not? The, this is where the discussion would be: if part of the country wants to break away, and the country that says mm -hmm. we own you, you don't get to break away. Yeah. Uh, and it was actually part of the election of Zelensky in the first place, which was to negotiate a resolution to that disputed territory and not be egged on into war by Big Brother and Big no, no, Police who are, who are helping you. Zelensky was elected after those territories were already part conquered by Russia. Right? The, the, those the, territories were part of Ukraine. There were never any votes in those, in those areas to join any other country until they were invaded by Russia. Crimea was simply taken by Russia, and then they've held referendums. Now, if you take a country and you put your own troops in there, any referendum you hold after that is obviously bullshit, right? Number one. Number two, if, if Canada decides to invade the, the north of the United States and take a couple of states, invades them, captures them, and has a referendum, and they decide to stay in Canada, is that legitimate? Well, no, I, I, there's, there's nuance that's being left out of that hypothesis. Which is what? Well, you're you're from what I surmise, and this would be one thing I would want to check is hmm. when the eastern provinces either they voted uh, for Zelensky overwhelmingly. You know that, right? He got uh, more votes in the east than he did in the west. I, I, from what I understand, it depends on where you break it down and what areas you're talking about. No, no, no. He was he was overwhelmingly elected by the eastern regions. He lost the west and won by the eastern central regions in those elections. Okay, well, with, uh, with widespread support. This would be an element of fact check. If I if I had, what's uh, what's Joe Rogan's uh, 
J- who's Jamie. Joe Rogan's? Jamie, Jamie, can you can you pull that up? I, I, yeah. I, I, I this would be something that I'll check afterwards. But I, okay. I did, I did recall that there was a breakdown of the uh, of the votes, and it was very much regional. Um, but even so, so let's let's go and look at the election map. He he lost the West and won in the East overwhelmingly. Look, I'm looking, I'm looking at the chat to see if anyone has any fact check there. Um, so let, well, okay. Operating on that premises, uh, without going into the, uh, without going to where that vote would be broken down based on geography within geography. Um, what, Look, what, let's address the central argument, right? Your central argument is this: these people are Russian. They're Russian speakers. They want to be part of Russia. Why doesn't Ukraine let them go? Is that your argument? No. Well, the, mine would be there. There are multiple levels to this. Uh, the one would be, my understanding is that. There's a disputed, there is a dispute over the eastern provinces. There is split loyalty between Ukraine and Russia. My understanding was that there was a, a vote, and I understand that the, the, the debate about how you conduct a vote and whether or not the people who were going to vote Ukraine had fled already to western Ukraine. Nonetheless, there's a dispute over eastern provinces, which historically have changed hands a number of times. So mm-hmm. not like Canada just invading the U.S. Historically, it changed hands. Uh, okay. have, have independents who don't want to be a part of Ukraine or Russia, mm-hmm. but be independent, and Ukraine says okay. no. Zelensky elected in, in 2016, what was it, 2014 or 2016? I think it's 2017. I don't remember. The, the, I'm terrible with dates, yeah. Me too. Well, he was, he was elected in having platformed, having run on a platform of negotiating a resolution mm-hmm. or at least engaging in it, uh, right. gets elected and then reneges on any form of negotiation now that he sees he has the backing of NATO powers. Okay. That's I, I my, don't think that's, that's what limited. happened. Okay, that's I, don't, I don't think it's what happened. What happened, I think, is both actually no, neither Russia nor Ukraine were particularly happy with the Minsk Accords. They were not sustainable. Neither side followed them. And that's why you have the, the conflict that you have. But this you've got to remember, this all goes back to how did this whole thing start? It started with Russia invading and, and, and take, annexing Crimea and invading those two eastern regions and supporting the people who... Uh, who broke out there. Like you talked about foreign intervention. I mean, it's exactly the same thing, but the other way around. Russia funded and supported these rebels in order for that conflict to start in the first place. If Russia wasn't meddling, uh, everything would be fine, would be the argument. Uh, I'm not sure. Yeah. I was going to say about about Crimea. That was not my understanding about Crimea either, but this is where... Uh, What's you know, your understanding about Crimea? That, that they they voted to that they voted after to, after after Russia put its troops there. Yeah, after they annexed it, then they had a referendum in which, surprise, ninety eight percent of whatever it was people voted to be part of Russia. But a better example would be, I mean, Canada. Okay, let's take Mexico. There are several states in the United States that used to be part of Mexico. Is Mexico entitled to invade the United States and have referendums in Texas and California and whatever else, Arizona, whatever? Uh, other states were part yeah, of, of well, I, it, There's a lot of imperfections with that analogy in that they're not current issues and they're not they're not current debates and they're not ones that are. Well, if Mexico was powerful enough, they would be current issues because Mexico would fund rebels in those areas. But the reason it doesn't happen is the United States is a lot stronger than Mexico. That's all. My point is, uh, all I'm saying, my friend, is this. If you want to go revise history with force, you can do that in every country for the rest of eternity. We can have a fight between England and Scotland. There are parts of France that might want to be parts of Germany and parts of Germany that might want to be parts of France. That's largely what World War I and World War II were about. You know, Alsace-Lorraine, these are two territories between those areas that are always in dispute. And that's what wars are about. You, you want to revise history with military force? Okay, fine, we can have that conversation. But at the end of the day, uh, either nations have territorial integrity or they don't. 
And my, my broader point is nothing to do with this anyway. First of all, the John Meyersheimer stuff about how Russian speakers, that means they're pro-Russian, complete bullshit. Uh, all of my family in Ukraine, North, East, South, West, all are Russian speakers. None of them are pro-Russian in this conflict. By the way, even the ones who were in the Russian Orthodox Church who were pro-Russian uh, from, from another part of my family, uh, they've all changed their minds after they saw what Russia was doing in Ukraine, surprisingly enough. Um, so this narrative about how these regions were desperate to break away, no, no, they weren't desperate. There were some people in those regions who were funded and supported by Russia who decided that they would like to be independent or actually part of Russia. Lots of other people didn't want. I'm, you would be surprised to hear most people don't want to be at war. Um, so... That's the conflict. But the real truth of it is, man, is from a Western perspective, it's nothing to do with that. It's, it's about what do you allow Russia to do? And in 2014, this is what happened. R Russia was allowed to start a civil war in Ukraine in the two eastern regions and annex Crimea. No punishment. So they come back in 2022. No punishment again, they'll come back again. That's why, however this conflict is resolved, and I don't think it will be resolved for a while because neither side is tired of fighting, um, what needs to end up happening is Russia will probably keep some portion of the territories it currently occupies. And in exchange for that, as I've said from day one, Ukraine gets some kind of long-term security, not guarantees, not like some words on a piece of paper, but actual physical security. And that means you will either have to join NATO uh, or there's a peacekeeping force and you get some kind of Korean-style split well, scenario. Jo joining NATO might be the very, uh, what some people perceive to be, you've characterized the Russian side, others are going to say their existential threat is NATO expanding into Ukraine. It is okay. it is biological weapon factories, whatever, research facilities in Ukraine. It's nuclear weapons in Ukraine. What would what would America do if there were nuclear warheads sure. in, in Mexico well, or in Cuba? I mean... It's, there would be a problem. Well, Russia, Russia has caused this conflict to go the way that it has. Uh, Sweden and Finland, for example, which were maintaining their neutrality precisely for this reason, because they're countries uh, on the border of Russia. Uh, they've since joined NATO. So, uh, by the way, this is this all this stuff about uh, Ukraine becoming a threat is all bullshit anyway, because uh, Russia has a border with NATO already. It has a border with NATO already. So if that was an issue, it wouldn't be such a big deal anyway. Look, what's the, what's the, what's the, what would be the size comparison between the border? I, I presume you mean... Uh... It's a smaller border. Of course it is. But nuclear weapons don't need a big border, right? It, it's not like the, diff the distance between Poland and Russia and Ukraine and Russia is so massively different that a nuclear missile... But can't then, cover that area. Then, then why why the NATO, why the specific NATO interest in Ukraine to begin with? If, it, I if don't... It, I, well, this is what I was going to say is, do you know who are the biggest supporters of Ukraine's defense uh, by percentage of GDP? Um, the biggest supporters of Ukraine's defense, meaning contributors to this conflict financially yes. with weapons? I would Ukraine's have, defense. By GDP, so it's not going to be by raw number. It's yeah. going to be per cap. Well, let me think. If I, I'll say the U.S. anyhow. Okay, Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania, Poland, Sweden, Finland. What do you think these countries have in common? Uh, a border with Russia. What do you think they know that people on Twitter don't? I, I, I think that, that, that statistic... They are risking so much. They are risking confronting and antagonizing an aggressive Russian state by supporting Ukraine. Why do you think they're doing that? Well, you're going to say for exit for the existential fear of Russia expanding, they might be correct. Next in terms of Why do you think Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania, Sweden, and Finland were desperate to join NATO? Well, I, I'm going to. I'll, 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 I, 
I, I got to it before the chat. I think, the, I, I think the GDP argument comparison is, is nonsense. I mean, that's because you're dealing with, with such small entities in the first place that it almost becomes a, a meaningless comparison. Uh, OK, but, if you have $10,000 and you give $1,000 to, no, to I, I understand the argument. I'm just saying like a thousand dollars to someone with ten thousand dollars is a lot of money. Uh, how much would they and, be giving? How, how much how much would they be dedicating of their GDP had the U.S. if the U.S. were not also funding this financing? I have no idea. It would be zero no because idea. it would be zero because they would have no chance of, of anything. And they would probably I, um, I don't agree with that, but it doesn't matter. The point is they are. My point is they're risking a lot. It's not about the money. It's about how much they're risking. Why are they doing that in your opinion? I, I, well, I, I'm not sure that I would necessarily agree that they're risking. Um, you think funding an enemy of Russia while having a border with Russia is not a risk? The, the, it, I don't think it's the risk that you make it out to be that now Russia is going to uh, lash out at them. Russia, if, it would if, do. No, if, 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 border, yeah. if borders don't matter and, and the nukes can reach all places on Earth, it doesn't matter if it's a neighbor or a neighbor of a neighbor. I mean, so I think that that. It's an interesting no, no. These countries have economic and military concerns about Russia. They always have done. When my dad was in the Russian government, his job was to keep Latvia and Estonia and Lithuania in line, actually. Right? These countries are in Russia's sphere of influence, and those countries have been invaded by Russia over and over and over and over again throughout history. And that's why they wanted the safety of being in NATO, just like Ukraine wanted the safety of being in NATO. And just so everybody also understands, the purpose of a discussion out there is not to convince anybody. I'm actually more interested in hearing uh, Constantine flesh out his opinions, and the mm. the smarter people on the internet are going to dissect it. But I do want to bring this this one up because this mm. would have been my retort. Uh, they're they're not risking anything. They're actually buying support from 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 U.S. and NATO. I mean, that's how. Uh, I don't understand. How are they buying support? By, by being on the side of the stronger power for now. I mean, okay, fine. Let, let's accept that part of it. How are they not risking anything? Uh, be, because they're basically buying insurance from the mob. I mean, that's the way I would have flipped the argument. You don't think there's a risk to Finland and Sweden and Latvia, Estonia and Lithuania from openly supporting a country that is in direct confrontation with Russia? Um, no, you mean direct confrontation with Ukraine? With Russia. Well, they're supporting Russia's enemy in a war. Oh. You don't think... You, you guys are all concerned about World War III because America is giving support to Ukraine. You don't think Russia would have something to say about Latvia, Estonia, and Lithuania doing that? Countries I, I, which are historically in its sphere of influence, countries which has tried to keep under its boot. Well, I mean, let, let, let me flip the argument on, your, uh, on you then. Okay. If Russia's looking for an excuse to expand, uh, why yeah. wouldn't they have already used this as a pretext? Because those countries are, thankfully for them, part of NATO. That's because why they, they were desperate because to they, join NATO. We're seeing the exact same thing, and you can, you can view it whichever way you want here. The, the, Russia's not attacking them because they've got the big brother, the big bully backing them. How'd they get that? By supporting the big bully. I mean, it's, no, no, it's, they it's, asked it's the to join NATO the moment they could. The moment, look, none of the countries, none of the countries in Russia's former sphere of influence in Eastern Europe, none of them have wanted to remain part of its orbit. Poland, Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania, right? Even Hungary, okay, Orban is pro-Putin, but Hungary doesn't want to be part of Russia's sphere of influence, right? The only country that's remained in any kind of alliance in Eastern Europe with Russia is Belarus, because Belarus has a guy who's even more dictatorial than Putin. That's the only reason, right? None of these countries want to be part of Russia's sphere of influence. You know why? Because they don't want to live in that part of the world under that sort of regime. 
they actually would quite like to have some freedom and liberal democracy. Thank you very much. Yeah, that's a, look, it's an, it's a, um, I'll say it's not an indefensible perspective. It's an interesting perspective, uh, but it, it is funny how you can look at them. You could look at this and see it from both. You could see it and describe it. Uh, they, you're saying, why would they, why would they risk provoking war with Russia? They are actually probably. I didn't say provoking war. I said it's a risk because Russia can do trade embargoes. Russia can use its economic power. Yeah, those, 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 am I wrong? Those trade embargoes would be pretty useless now that those members are NATO members and, and have the rest of Europe. No, those countries still. I mean, they before the war, they used to do a lot of trade. I mean, they're, they're neighbors. People say defund NATO. I mean, the, the, and, and then the, the, the problem is, though, Constantine, there are people who look at NATO as the, the villain that some, I won't say you, but I suspect. Maybe mm -hmm. you some look at Putin like, OK, so we're picking our dictators here. You, you prefer the NATO. Uh, correct. I do prefer NATO. That's correct. That's exactly right. Uh, the world is going to be ruled by somebody you don't like. I'd rather they had more of my values than not. Sorry. Yeah, so, no, and that, that I think is actually the, the, where we can put a bow tie in it is that people are going to say uh, you're, you're picking NATO dominance over Russian dominance. That's correct. Fine. I told you an hour ago, I prefer an American dominated world well, no, because true. I've lived in a world that's not dominated by America and I don't want to live in that world. And I have but two that, friends from China. I don't want to live in that world either. That's the yeah. choice. Well, how about the choice? How about people who are going to say that this is then NATO is the true bully saying to Russia, you either deal with us dominating you uh, or or die trying. Or will crush you trying? I mean, why, why is that well, not? No, one's no one was crushing Russia. Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania wanted to join NATO. So did Ukraine. No one made Ukrainians pro-Western. Ukrainians were pro-Western. I used to go to Ukraine twice a year. And in Ukraine, a decade ago, in fact, two decades ago, you know what they used to call? So we didn't have, um, do you know uh, what's, I don't know if it's the same in Canada, uh, double glazing, what we call double glazing. Do you have that? On donuts? No, 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 not on donuts. Windows, <laughs> windows. I don't uh, know what uh, you mean, like frosted. I, two, I'm not... two panes of glass instead of one, which oh, keeps yeah. the, the heat Sound trapped. Proof. Okay, right. Fine. Yes, yes. Okay, so that is the technology we didn't have in the Soviet Union, right? And in Ukraine, when it first became available, do you know what they called it? They called it Euro Windows. When lawns first became available in Ukraine, where you could have a lawn made for your house, they used to call them Euro lawns because. The idea was everything that's from the West is good, right? People in Ukraine wanted to move in a pro-Westward direction from the moment the Soviet Union collapsed. This was not the case in Russia. In Russia, everything Western is bad and shit and whatever, right? Ukrainians as a country and as a nation, most of them wanted to move in a pro-Western direction. And that is what this is all about. That was what they, they wanted. No one made them want to be part of NATO. No, NATO didn't come in and drop microchips in the head decide, and said, you need to move in a westward direction. These countries want to be under our umbrella of protection. Um, and it's up to us whether you want them to be well, part of that. Constantine, let's 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 uh, I'll do what I like to do in a debate and say, OK, uh, take mm -hmm. for granted your position. Russia, Russia is bad and bad and needs to be stopped. And NATO needs to win. Uh, what do you say to the fact that this war is actually doing nothing other than continuing further conflict because it's very profitable for all of the parties involved and it's using Ukrainian innocent civilians as the pawns to further endless war so well, that... I agree with you. War is bad and the sooner it can end, the better. Uh, the question is how it ends. Uh, and this is what I never hear from the the pro the people who think they're pro-peace, which they're not. How do you end this war? How do you uh, end this war? Tell me. 
Well, I, I would say you will negotiate, hold, hold independent referendums on the eastern provinces and, and How? eliminate... How do you hold independent referendums? Get in the, I, in I, the I, I would say in get a the country U that's occupied. Well, I would say get the UN in, but we know what the UN does when they get... Yeah, but all the people who are going to vote to stay in Ukraine have already been fl fled, killed, well, so or imprisoned. But so now you've, you've, at, you've set up a premise where there is no resolution, because if you lose no, the vote... No, which you that's know not what I said. I gave you my resolution. I gave my resolution on March the 3rd when I was on question time in this country, and I gave it to you during this talk again. Russia gets to keep those eastern regions that it's already occupied, because no one in Ukraine expects to get them back anyway. Right. He gets to keep Crimea, in my opinion. Ukrainians, by the way, don't like me saying this, but this is my opinion. Mm -hmm. And in exchange, Ukraine gets to join NATO. That's the deal. Now, neither how, Russia how... or Ukraine will accept that deal right now. That's well, why think... the war won't end. Well, I, th I think nobody's going to agree to them joining NATO if what NATO is going to want to do is continue bio bio research on Ukrainian soil and plant nukes there. I mean, obviously, the, the whole the whole point is here. Take the little sliver and allow us yeah. to bring in arms that will allow us to when we want to kick you out of that sliver the next time. Do it. Boy, howdy, because we've got nukes on your border. OK, and, so and tell me how war. you end the war. Um, I, oh, I would say I would say hold something of an of a referendum on the eastern provinces. Well, so and, we were except we've already got to the point that we know that's impossible. No, you got to that point. You asked me my solution. Now you tell me why it's not possible. Well, say, it isn't possible because the people who are going to vote there don't live there anymore. So you're then holding a referendum on a territory that's been cleansed of anyone who was going to vote in a way that Russia wasn't going to like. Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, I, I was going to analogize this to the Middle East, but I will not. Um, okay. That 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 would be. You may not like the solution. You'll say, "I'm going to lose that solution." So, to, but you're already prepared to concede it under your peace plan, anyhow. So it should be no problem, right? Because I don't want I don't want fake referendums to legitimize what happened. Well, you can, you'll have to you'll have to either uh, caveat the referendum with, "But we know we're going to lose." And I mean, I, I don't know what the solution is to the denazification of of the Ukrainian army. I mean, I don't know how you eliminate the Azov battalion, but. If that seems to it's be already a, been largely eliminated in combat, so well, how do you denazify the U.S. military, which probably has more Nazis in it? Uh, well, the, I, I would say, I, you know what I would say? I would say defund the the American. Not defund. How, what about denazification of the Russian military? Much more Nazified than the Ukrainian one. What about yeah. denazifying the Russian state? Dmitry Rogozin, former prime minister, deputy prime minister of Russia, former head of Russia's equivalent of NASA, openly on camera doing a Nazi salute, saying yeah, white but, people but, of the world it, unite. That's fine, saying, is it? No, you're, what you're saying is, I, I think. So why don't we denazify Russia? Why are you so concerned about that? No, no, I, I'm saying. No, people, the, come on, man. We care about Nazis, right? Let's no, denazify Russia's the, military. You asked, for the, you asked for the peace plan. My whole point in this right. is that Ukraine and so what Russia, are we going to do about the Russian Nazification program? You know, constantly. You know how to resolve this problem? Stop, yep. stop, stop funding Ukraine. Uh, the, the Ukraine war machine, and they'll negotiate their peace. That's how it works. The, oh, you mean they'll surrender? They, they would, they would. So you're Surrender. pro, well, that's good. I'm glad we got it because this is the position that all the pro-peace people don't want to say out loud. You're pro-forcing Ukraine to surrender. That's fine. Uh, well, no, that's I, a I perfectly actually, acceptable position. You're strawmanning, but I don't care. Uh, my point How is am I strawmanning? Well, you the, said, the, take away the support and they will negotiate their peace. The only uh, peace uh, they'll be able to negotiate is a full surrender. Well, you're, predi you're, pre you're predicting That's future. what would happen. Well, but if he, they can't defend themselves and Russia is invading, what they, other solution but, is there going to be? Continent, first of all, uh, there are different ways to protect yourself, not not all of which is um, through a corrupt military machine that will enjoy a war that never ends. You, you presume the U.S. is involved to support Ukraine when they might just be involved to promote this war for as long as they no, can. Forget about that. I'm just talking about the point that you made, which well, is, well, my point let's is this, you said, take away the support. 
and let them negotiate their own settlement. Now, I, I, that I, is I, equivalent I, of saying there's a rapist raping a woman. Let's take away her support and protection and let them negotiate their own settlement. Well, that, what do that, you think is going to happen? Well, it, it, that that's is, what would happen. Well, but you, you said so you're not pro peace. You're no, pro surrender. Constantine, you, you set up a straw man that Russia. How? Is, you set up a straw man that Russia is raping Ukraine. I mean, that's that's uh, exactly that's, what it's doing. That's what it's doing. And, and others are going to look at this as regional conflict and okay. where it got where it got escalated. What happens in regional conflict? Typically, the regions negotiate it. But what what falsifies regional conflict is when outside regions come in and start propping up one party over okay. another, and that exacerbates the problem well, and makes there, a regional a conflict an, an international one. Fine. Okay, let's go back to the beginning but, but, Hold on, cousin, cousin is, is, it, is it the West's obligation to get involved in every no. global conflict where you think one party not. is raping another? Well, I, I told you that I was against Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria. Yeah, but Libya, someone, so. would have made, someone would have made the argument that, that the Iraqi people are getting raped by Saddam Hussein, so it's up to the West to come in. I mean, you can, you can, you can pull saying, that analogy around on, everywhere. Hold on, hold on. Uh, I'm not saying it's our obligation. I'm saying it's in our interests. Coming back to the point. However, let's go back to what you said. You Hold said, on, let me, let me what, stop you there. Not our obligation, yeah. but in our interests. Yeah, of course, it's in our interest. I said that again an hour ago. But no, let's no, come I back know, to your point. That's it, because it's an Viva. interesting way of viewing conflict. Let, let's just come back to the point that you made, right? Which is if we take away the support from the Ukrainians, they will negotiate their own settlement. Now, go back to February 24th of last year. What happened when Ukraine didn't have foreign support of the scale that it has now? Russia nearly occupied all of central and eastern ukraine half the country right i'm not sure i'm not sure I would that's what that. happened what do you mean they, they were they were this far away from kiev they took Kherson. they were this far away from taking harkov and they were pushing ukraine out of the two eastern regions jamie and that jamie, was that, with fact, a lot of support fact, fact that one for fact yeah go check, look on the map man i i know what was happening i was paying pretty close attention anyway that's what was happening they nearly took over half the country including the capital so if ukraine had no foreign support what kind of peace settlement do you think they'd negotiate if Russia knew for a fact that they could overrun the entire country? Well, they I, would I, just mi miraculously stop, would they? No, I think they would have negotiated uh, the independence or referendum of the East, but now you've already predicated that that be not being a They solution. nearly occupied Kiev in three days. But well, I see, we're going to have I'm not uh, that we're going to have to they, double check. They but, were this close to Kiev. They were it, literally on the outskirts. Well, uh, I had family members sending me videos of Russian tanks on the outskirts of Kiev. Is it? I mean, and if you pull Western support away from Ukraine, they would take over at least half the country, probably all of it, if they could. Uh, Install their puppet government with your friend Viktor Medvedchuk, and everything would be fine. If that's what you want, I wish you would just say it. Because I have no problem with people having that position. I genuinely don't. I just don't like dishonesty. Right. If that's what you want, say it. Uh, Constantine, I, I've said what I what I think would be the the, the solution to this. It's uh, that. No, no, that's it's not. That. That's that's your straw man to make it look like this. But it's is not a, a straw man. Conflict. What would happen to Ukraine if it didn't have Western support? We saw that in the first days of the invasion, half of it would be occupied. That's uh, what we I, saw. I, well, I've, I'll, I'll, I, I don't. I'll fundamentally disagree, but it's an impossible thing to answer. What About would happen what? if the, the the dispute appears to be over the eastern region? Right. If, if it were Russians' intent to take so over, so why did they try to? Why did they try to occupy Kiev? Why did they uh, occupy Kherson? Why did they occupy Zaporozhye? Why did they try to occupy Kharkiv? None of these cities are in the eastern regions. These are the biggest cities in Ukraine. Why did they try to occupy all of them? Why did uh, that happen? Well, you're you're you're. Why did they try to why? capture Zelensky? Why did they want to capture Zelensky? That's a much different question. Uh, but you're asking why, which presupposes the that. So that would be that would be one one matter of fact question as to whether or not it is 
Well, I then act- you go and, you need to go and look up the facts, my friend, because that's what they did in the first days of the invasion. Okay. They, they remember Bucha, where all those all those massacres happened that people like to talk about, right? That is on the outskirts of Kiev. Gostomel, the airport that they tried to take, is on the outskirts of Kiev. All of these places, they tried oh, but, to take the capital in the first yeah, days of okay. the war. Well, Do you remember that massive convoy that got stuck on the road? Yeah. That convoy was going from Belarus to Kiev to take the capital. That's uh, what they were trying to do. Well, They took Kherson in the south. By They got some local traitors to help. That is not part of the eastern regions. What about Kharkiv? Again, not part of the eastern regions. They were this close to taking you, it. You might be, you might be, I mean, for the sake of argument, it's, it's an interesting tactic, uh, confounding taking strategic points of interest in the conflict of a, of a, in the context of a conflict versus taking the entire country. So why would they take an airport? I presume it's so that they can secure- it's not the, the capital, Kiev, it's in the center. No, no, but I understand, but I, I think we disagree on that as a matter of fact. I don't think at any- What do you mean we disagree on it as a matter uh, of that, fact? That my understanding is not that at any point that Russia was trying to take Kiev. Well, then you need to do more research. Okay, but, they, but and if I'm wrong, that's where the internet will say Viva was wrong as a matter of fact, Konstantin was right as a matter cool. of fact. All right. Um, now, with that said, uh, you know, I think I think we've 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 milked, not milked, but rather, uh, dude, we've overrun by half an hour, and I wish <laughs> we had more time because I'd happily chat to the to you about well, this for hours. Well, so so, so let, let's let's end on a on an optimistic note. Um, is the West in a state of uh, free fall? For freedom, freedom of thoughts. Uh, what is what is the state of 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 England, the UK right now? I mean, it, it looks yeah. like it looks like shit. I mean, we've we've seen what happened with Count Dankula. We've seen people seem to be ushering in censorship. People seem to be ushering in absolute denial of basic science. They seem to be ushering in the world that you grew up in that you that you left. What what is your what is your optimism, if any, for the state of well? The world that I left is even worse, as we've talked about. In Russia, people are getting arrested for protesting. As a single, so initially they would go out with with a placard saying peace or something. They'd get arrested. Then they would go out with no placard, just hand their hands up. They'd get arrested for that. You get arrested in Russia and put in prison for ten years for saying uh, for calling the war a war. So uh, the world is all in a bad way, in my opinion. Am I concerned about what's happening in the West? Yes. That's why I, uh, like you, and like many other people, are trying to improve the West from the inside. Um, if you think Putin is the solution to the West problems, you have no, another no, thing no, but, coming. But, but, no, I don't but, mean you. I don't mean no, you. No, I, don't let, let you me say I don't think Putin's the solution. I think this conflict in Ukraine and the the drumming up of getting into World War III is part and parcel of the the downfall of the West. That's what I, that's what I genuinely feel. Nah. The, the 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 two countries that have benefited the most from this conflict are China and the United States, and the the two countries that have lost the most from this conflict are Russia and Ukraine. Absolutely. Um, so this is not not beneficial to to the West. I think in some ways. Um, it will actually help. Uh, not that it's a good thing. I'm not for this war being in place or continuing, but it's not going to end anytime soon. Um, and so uh, the West is in trouble. I think many other countries are in even worse situation situations. And uh, what we have to do as Western citizens and is look inward and deal with our own governments and hold them to account and try to also change the culture. Because I say this often to Americans, it's like the reason, for example, comedy is in not nearly as much trouble in America as it is in the UK, is not that you have a First Amendment, it's that you have a First Amendment culture, right? You have to have a culture that underpins these attitudes uh, before anything else. So I think that's our job. We've got to change the culture. Uh, I'm trying to do that, you're trying to do that, and uh, let's carry on. All right, Constantine, thank you very much. You know what? I thought this when you told me in the beginning that you only had an hour. I said I'm going to try to go for as long as I can because it's the ultimate compliment when someone 
you know, goes past the, the a lot of time. Yeah. Thank you for staying on with me. Um, everybody in the chat, thank you for being here. I didn't get to the Super Chats, but I've starred them, so I'll get to them in my locals and thank everyone for that. Constantine, stick around just for two seconds. We'll say our proper goodbyes. Everyone out there, uh, see you tomorrow. I'm going to announce my guest for tomorrow this afternoon. It's a big one.